2: Coming up next on the Liverbird Sailing Podcast.
1: But it also is inspired a lot of people that know very little about sailing to want to go and try, and it's totally possible. We worked yeah. with a lot of people that have no experience or virtually no experience, and go through the process step by step, slowly, and, and then assess them: are, Do they have good mechanical aptitude, and are they going to grasp things in a way more quickly, or is it going to be a little bit slower process? And maybe we'd suggest they hire a captain on the boat for, for the first little bit of time until they develop the skills enough to be safe on the boat.
2: Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Annika. On the Live Abroad Sailing Podcast, I chat with awesome people who live, work, and travel on their sailboats. My guests share inspiring stories and real-life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures this week i'm excited to bring you another value-packed episode this could have been labeled as an expert interview as today's guests BN and jamie from sailing totem truly know what they're talking about and they share a lot of excellent advice we talk about a variety of topics such as the best and worst parts about this lifestyle and they can talk about this with some authority having spent over 13 years as Liverboard cruisers We also talk about Mexico as a liverboard destination, and Bian and Jamie share really good tips about common pitfalls of boat shopping, based on their experience of coaching other people through this process. Now here is my chat with Bian and Jamie from Sailing Totem. So I was curious, thinking back to the beginning of your liverboard journey, why did you want to Leave your land life in the first place. What got you going? I think it was back in 2008 that you started sailing or started your live upper life. So, what was your maybe main reasons or a couple of reasons for that?
1: Sure. for For me, the journey began when I was 11. Mm-hmm. the The idea of going cruising was cemented in reading uh, Dove Robin Lee Graham's book, and um, and from that age on, I grew up sailing with my family and became a sailmaker and sail professionally. Um, and uh, and that's what I wanted to do someday. And our path um, together, that someday was always going to be a post-retirement thing because nobody went cruising with kids or very few people. Uh, until 2001, early two, My I got a call from my sister that she had cancer and that all resolved okay. But I also got a few weeks later a call from my mother saying she had cancer. And that didn't resolve, and she passed away just a few months later, around the time our second daughter was born. And um, our someday um, dream became this switch to, why someday? There's no guarantee. What are we waiting life. for? My mother was 56.
3: She had just retired and was just making all of these plans for the things that she wanted to do, and that she didn't get to do any of them. And... We thought, you know, this this future plan of ours was based in part upon um, modeling from our mentors um, who did actually go after they retired. And and they had great adventures. They circumnavigated and then they did the lap of the Pacific. But yeah, Jamie's uh, family experience really kind of snapped us into why are we waiting? Um, and so leaving land life for us then was um, something that went from a retirement dream to we need to take a sabbatical to spend time as a family because life holds no promises. And that was, a, that was a major driver. It was, um, it was truly this family time that we didn't have on land that we were seeking.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's a very good reminder that life isn't guaranteed and you can make all the plans you want years ahead, but there's no guarantee that you will get to that or be in that, uh, in the right kind of health or, financial situation or whatever, it's hard to predict that far ahead. So uh, it's definitely a good reminder. But you mentioned family time was one of the things that you wanted from this lifestyle. And I was curious about your experiences because you've always been doing this for so long. So what would you say are the best parts and maybe the worst parts of this lifestyle? Is family time and increased family time the best?
3: It's awesome. It's so so great. I feel so lucky to have been able to adventure as a family while, as, while our kids were growing
1: up. As long as you don't kill them, because that gets complicated. <laughs> right. So, we recommend that um, it's better to go into this with uh, with good relationships.
2: So, the family time is the best and the worst part. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Possibly, no. It's really it it really is a, a quite a gift because our lives are so busy, and we had the chance to slow down the clock and to slow it down in a way that is so deeply fulfilling um, at the same time as giving our kids an incredible childhood um, and a wealth of experiences, a well that they can draw on literally for the rest of their lives, and a new way of looking at the world for them and for us. Uh, an incredible privilege to be able to do that. When we,
1: when we began um, this realization of why is someday way down the road, why not make it sooner, um, and we started to kind of assess our lives and figure out a plan and all it was looking around and saying okay what's our schedule in the next couple of weeks and it's like well it's the weekend right we get to hang out well no because we're rushing off to six birthday parties and you got to get the gifts and then it's back and then it's the soccer thing i've got a meeting in
3: minneapolis on monday so i'll be flying out sunday night and probably spending most of saturday night on powerpoint after the kids are in bed so our
1: like our first child was born in 99 and two weeks later he was eight years old and it just goes by so quickly and so so, um, once we transitioned into this and you're around your family all the time it does slow down that clock as being said
3: when your life is patterned in a repetitive way and it may be a very Good life. You go to your favorite restaurants. You see your friends. You have a local uh, sailboat that you take out. Maybe you join. You're in local races. Um, but it's it's patterned in ways that are repetitive and not differentiated. It may be wonderful, but those years kind of uh, are hard to pull apart later. And and I look back at our life, and every year is so wildly different. Okay, until COVID. But for the most part, every year is so wildly different. I can think about. Um, how old the kids were. Um, and, you know, when, and I can pick a year and a month and, and I'll say, right, we were in Vanuatu and we had the most incredible experience where we were snorkeling this reef and a tuna basically screeched to a halt and stared at Jamie as if he might be his next October prey.
1: 2010, by the way. Boom.
3: Right. Like our life has this, um, uh, this richness that is uh, from being less patterned in that repetitive way that, that a good life might be. But we like our version.
2: Yeah, for sure. That makes sense that I can completely understand that routine. Like it can be very comforting and very nice and easy. But when you start thinking about it, like, wait, is this what it is? Like, yeah, it's a great, nice routine that I got to go about for the next 10, 20, 30 years. So wait, what, what's there? So you don't want to know everything that happens. You know, don't want to picture your life 10 years from now and realize that it's been the same than the last 10 years. So I, I can understand that. I want
3: to jump in a little more on the best and worst because I feel like we've given a little slice of it and I want to expand a little more, which is just to say, I feel like some of the best of this life is that incredible opportunity to build genuine empathy for this huge range of humans on the planet uh, because we get to meet them and share meals with them and learn about their language and culture. and, And I just love that so much that we have this constant learning opportunity. But you know, the worst parts too, there, there are times, you know, that we have high highs and low lows, and it can be incredibly stressful, we live closer to the edge, uh, we have less security, we have a lot of unknowns. And, and that can be deep stress that I would say, they don't happen enough that I want to characterize them as as worst, in a way that happens often, but they do.
2: Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a balance there for sure. But you referenced there some of the destinations that you have visited, and obviously you have seen a lot after your circumnavigation, but you also spent a lot of time in Mexico, particularly recently, spending the pandemic there, and uh, I know there's a lot of listeners from the Pacific Northwest area who are or are about to head to that way uh, and do the liverboard life in Mexico. So I would love to hear your thoughts about Mexico as a liveaboard uh, destination.
1: It's so good. <laughs> it's a it's a great region mm. because um, because it's got these hubs where you can more easily live live aboard with a community of other sailors or or live aboard less active cruisers, and that's fine with a town and, and um, resources locally. Or you can actively cruise the twenty five hundred miles of coastline and and um, different regions on the mainland.
3: There's fr- so much diversity. South, it's so mm-hmm. different
1: than up in the Sea of Cortez. So it, it's we, we've we done 12,000 miles in Mexico over a cumulative, I think, four That's and that, a half yeah. years out of the last 14. Um, mm-hmm. Not at all by choice. COVID has kind of shut us down here and, and kept us from going west again. But we, we enjoy our time here. Mm-hmm. It's a friendly culture. It's
3: it, very safe, uh, <clears throat> contrary to opinions north of the border. Um, I feel so much safer here than I do up north. Um, it has... Very friendly people. Um, mm-hmm. The food is fantastic. It's extremely affordable. I mean, there's so many things that make it a good place to be living aboard and cruising.
2: Of course. And the weather doesn't hurt either. <laughs> oh,
3: the weather's great.
2: <laughs> it is interesting to hear, though, that you're saying that it's, it's maybe more friendly towards liverboards than, say, um, North America or the, the USA or Canada Um not that Canada is necessarily unfriendly towards liverboards, but it's certainly a challenge to find that one marina that may or may not allow liverboards. And then there's wait lists for years and years. So it sounds like that aspect of the liverboard life sort of logistical, where am I going to go? Am I allowed to be here? Is maybe not an issue in uh, Mexico then.
1: It's true. It's really not an issue. You can pick a, a place, a marina around Puerto Vallarta, People live aboard, people snowbird. Um, people actively cruise and are transient through those places. La Paz is another place, Puerto Escondido or Loretto area. Um, and, and wait time to get a slip is, is, um, is pretty much zero everywhere. Uh, there's usually places available and they don't care if you're living aboard or, or passing through.
2: Well, that is great to hear that uh, there are places in the world who are <laughs> friendly towards that. Another thing I wanted to hear from your experience, since you have uh, so many years of experience and you've seen so many places, and of course, since you have circumnavigated, uh, I have the mandatory question of where in the world are your favorite places? And I don't know, is this going to be <laughs> the rest of the podcast, you listing listening everywhere you've been, <laughs> but uh, what are the highlights?
3: <laughs> yeah, it's true. It is the obligatory question. Um, I've got about 100
1: top 10 places. So, yeah, if you've got the time. Truly. (laughs)
2: Let's do alphabetically. (laughs) (laughs) Not chronological. because
3: Yeah, I know so many favorites and so many themes among them. Um, I think at the end of the day, uh, the places that we especially love are the places where we're able to connect with people um, and learn more about that place. And um, those countries are everywhere. Uh, I think that, the countries that we've liked least have been um, the ones where it was most familiar m- we're yeah m- most familiar culturally and where you feel more on the outside because uh, although we might be interested in meeting people uh, there they're but, less interested in meeting us there's if not that a makes
1: sense but by
3: not that we're so special and need to be met just that they've got busy <laughs> lives and we've got you know the, 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 it's it's more we uh, like the interaction, common to the but, US i guess
1: um, so Top places, depending on what's the category. If we want to talk about best places for food that we've been, best it could be Thailand, Indonesia, Mexico, South Africa. If oh my goodness, If South it's under, underwater. Mm. Um, Maldives. Raja Ampat yeah, in and the Indonesia. eastern Indonesia. French
3: Polynesia is two uh,
1: Yeah, Cook Islands, mm-hmm. spectacular places. If it's um, natural beauty, like, Bora Bora and some of the Society Islands of French Polynesia, Lesotho,
3: Drakensberg, um, Namibia's Skeleton Coast,
1: Indonesia pops up again yeah, there too. So it uh, history, World War II stuff is all over the Western Pacific, and the history of Saint Helena with it's basically it was a truck stop for for mariners for four or five hundred years,
3: belonging to no one, and all of these different cultures passing through it and each one seeding it with uh, a piece of influence. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and sorry, I'm sorry. It's a very unsatisfying answer to a really legitimate question. Um, Basically, go go see all the things. (laughs)
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly what I expected to be. I I would have been surprised if you'd been like, no, this country is the one number one. But I was just so curious to hear about your thoughts, and I loved hearing that.
3: But here's a bit of good fortune. I think if we had to pick one country to spend the pandemic in, I actually think it's probably Mexico. And so thank goodness we were here. And it's that combination of things that it has. It has. okay, it doesn't actually have anything interesting underwater. It's very boring that way. Um, Not entirely. Not entirely, but eh, compared to other places. Um, But it has this um, both interest and ease of living combined with being affordable, that is kind of a holy grail for a lot of cruising and makes it easy to and stay. And being a long such time. a
1: large country, we didn't have to cross borders all the time. Mm-hmm. So, people that were in the Caribbean when it wasn't entirely locked down, crossing borders meant COVID tests and quarantine. And, and it was good that they could do that, but it presented some financial and practical hassles along the way.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. I've followed a lot of YouTube channels and have been watching their journey through the pandemic either stuck on on one island or trying to get through to other ones. So it's certainly been a hassle. So yeah, you guys were very lucky that you ended up uh, being in, in that area uh, for the pandemic.
3: I just went through an added up cost would be for a family that wanted to sail, like, let's say a crew of four people to go from the US East Coast and, and not make all of the stops, but you know, many of the typical stops from Florida to Grenada. And the clearance costs are at least about $4,000 right now by the time you add up all of the COVID tests that you have to take and the extra health tests and things like that. So hopefully those will all be a memory in the next couple of years, but right now it certainly adds to the cost of cruising.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. And that was a cost that kind of nobody saw coming. So that's an, an interesting point. You always need a little backup fund for for the unexpected. That's right. <laughs> you talk a little bit about connecting with different cultures and meeting locals and connecting with the locals. I'm curious about your language skills. Have you over the years acquired foreign language skills as well? I'm still
1: practicing English.
3: Jeez, James. <laughs> um... Uh, Jamie actually has much better language skills than he gives himself credit for. Before we went cruising, his work was, um, he had a, a medical equipment business, importing and distributing equipment, primarily for a German supplier. And he'd sit in a room of uh, and understand what was happening in German. But I can't begin to. Well, um, but BM has the language skills. Um, I geek out on, on language. I really have fun with it. I majored in Mandarin Chinese in college. I learned Indonesian in my 20s, and those two aren't really helpful in a a pan-global way, but there are a lot of people that speak them, and when we came through Southeast Asia, it was certainly helpful. Um, But I just have fun learning language, and so I'll usually put flashcards together before we get to a new place of like the top 20 phrases I'm probably going to say, and how to count to 10, and how to do all the basic pleasantries, and please and thank you, and things like that. Um, And I really have fun with it. And Sometimes those are languages that don't exist um, in Google Translate or that I can find online. Like I remember sitting in Madagascar in uh, what is it the the Crater Bay Yacht Club, which is basically a shed on the beach, um, talking to the bartender, helping him. Uh, with getting his help to create my flashcards in the Sokolov dialect, because that was what most tribes people in the west coast, northwest coast of Madagascar speak. And it was so cool to be able to use those later at, in the market and surprise people and the same thing in Comoros and then to start feeling the blend of like, um, the roots of different languages that, that are happening. Oh, anyway, I, I I really enjoy it. And my Spanish should be much better than it is considering we're here. <laughs>
2: No, I completely understand. I also love languages and love geeking out about these little things and trying to master at least the main languages and and all that I'm originally from Finland. So, uh, you know, nobody speaks my language, so I kind of have to speak everybody else's language. So uh, that's been my take on it. uh, But I'm looking forward to certainly using it more in practice as well uh, once I get to cruising and Maybe something more exotic. I'm not sure Mandarin Chinese is, is quite up there yet, but
3: <laughs> maybe some
2: other local languages. That would be cool.
3: <laughs> hey, Mandarin, actually not as difficult as you think. People are intimidated because of how hard it looks to read and because of the tones. But actually, it's very simple since you're a language geek. It's just subject, verb, object. There's no conjugation. Um, it, anyway, it's, it's less complicated than you might imagine. Oh, but there aren't a lot of places to go sailing where Mandarin is a dominant language.
2: So. That is true. That is true. I speak Hebrew, and that's... You speak boat.
3: <laughs> Jamie's very good at boat. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, perfect. Let's talk about boats then, because I am curious about your boat. So if you want to remind us what kind of boat you have, and I would love to hear, since you've been on it for a while, what are your favorite qualities in that boat?
1: At this point in time, we have a highly customized Stevens 47, which was cool. a Sparksman Stevens-designed boat. Uh, from 1978, she was built in '82. So next year she'll be 40 years old, and um, they're seen as a classic, plastic blue water offshore capable, well-regarded boat for this. And 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 it's one of the reasons we focused in on the boat when we were boat shopping 16 years ago, and um, and and it's she's been a great boat for us. Um, it's got good sailing performance, and we think that's an important quality in, in a in a offshore boat to be able to do passage time in reasonable amount to stay ahead of bad weather. It's, it's got good storage and good room and, and uh, it's a maintainable boat, but like all boats, it's got its compromises as well. And so for example, the, um, the bow it's a fairly narrow bow entry and it's raked quite a lot. And so in a, in a bigger sea state, we'll bury our bow a bit more than I would love because it doesn't have that volume up forward. Um, the flip side is, is that we have a really big rudder, so we actually, steering, we respond well, um, especially like going downwind where boats can get knocked around a bit and, and wander. We, we hold course really well, so we've never had an unexpected jibe or anything like that. So pros and cons of all boats. Um, and the, the highly customized part at this point <laughs> is that when we first got Totem and we were, moved aboard as a family, we actually, just before we moved aboard, we had dinner on the boat one night, and we have three little kids at the time, and the five of us could not sit around the table.
3: Literally, couldn't fit on, around the table in the main cabin. Yeah,
1: for to, to have a meal. The table folded out, and so one person had to sit on the other side, and it felt like a banquet table, which just didn't seem very family-like. And so, no,
3: for there on the starboard side, um, yeah.
1: <laughs> that began this journey of making totem ours, And so main cabin modifications, cabinetry modifications, then it was, um, you know, aft cabin making it, it had a, it had one of these arrangements with like a double berth on one side and a single on the other. And well, we don't that, really like spectators no, we don't so, need in the aft cabin. Either. So, um, you know, ripped out the one single and, and made the, the one bigger and more appropriate. And, um, our latest modifications are, um, uh, we've got a reverse transom, but in, in classic sort of, uh late 70s, early 80s form without any steps. It's got a stainless steel, had a stainless steel flip down ladder. And it's, it's um, wonderfully awkward trying to get up and down with fins or just walking. It's just not very comfortable. So we've dreamed for years about having steps. Could it be done? We know people that took a uh, a later, Hylus 49 and molded off the back of that and stuck it on the back of their Stevens 47 because so it's the same hull.
3: Same hull, two feet longer, and those two feet is the swim step, yeah. pretty much.
1: And that worked, um, but we ended up, uh, I've been noodling on it for probably 12 years, so plenty of time to think about it. And Finally came up with an idea, and then this last summer, um, angle grinder into the transom with blue, light, blue tape marks around it, identifying where our future steps were going to be. And so now we've got um, we've got steps in our transom and that project's about about 90 percent done. So that's a that's a big one that we're really looking forward to getting to use in the next years uh,
3: ahead.
2: Oh, yeah. you are gotten all into the customization then. <laughs>
3: Truly. And you know what? It's it's so helpful, I think, for some people to realize that when you buy a boat, you don't necessarily buy the layout. I mean, the bulkheads have to be where the bulkheads are, and it's inconvenient if you have to move too many through-hulls. And you do have to think about weight, so where's tankage and things like that. But you can do almost endless modifications to an interior. Um, and this may be something that um, that actually people buying and flipping um, or remodeling very uh, kind of older, older, inexpensive boats has helped to illuminate, that there really is so much that you could do.
2: And you obviously now help a lot of other people buy boats as well. And you've done that for for many years as well. And you talk to a lot of people and help them through the process of of buying a boat. And I'm curious, as a lot of listeners are sort of in the same boat as myself, which is not having a boat yet. um, Have you seen over the years some sort of common pitfalls that people get into when they're looking at buying a boat? Like what are some of the most common mistakes that people start to make before you go in and interject them. <laughs> don't do that.
3: <laughs> the big one is buying more boat than they can afford, not realizing how much that boat is actually going to cost. That's So huge. it's what
1: people tend to focus on is the purchase price, and they, they tend to maximize the boat based on the purchase price and their money that they've got available.
3: The biggest and, boat they think they can afford.
1: And don't leave enough for the refit to make it a cruising boat. There's a vast difference between what a a coastal weekend boat is, what a regional cruising boat is, what a island hopping boat is versus a a boat that's capable of of crossing oceans. And so those expenses add up really quickly.
3: And they're hampered because they can't look at a listing and intuit a lot of those things. And so it's one of the ways that we're really helpful to people in the shopping process. Jamie has the superpower of being able to read the tea leaves in a listing based on what's said and what's not said provide the real story on possibilities for this boat, if there's even enough information to do that. Because regionally, some listings are very, very thin. It's very hard to get a a, a detailed, thorough listing from a boat in the Med, for example. Yeah,
1: we've got a process to work through this um, that helps uh, evaluate listings and and then um, compile all of the costs to look at what is the real investment required to make this boat ready to do whatever your cruising right. vision
3: is like real numbers. So that that boat that looks like a steel, actually when you add everything up for the possibilities of what it's going to take and, can, can, can double, you know, readily.
1: And the point is that not that you mean a million dollars to go cruising. It's that whatever amount of money you have that you are sizing appropriately for that. So that that's a real common one is the, um, getting the money part wrong. Another one for families can be um, wrong sizing the boat, basically um, getting a boat that might be appropriate for the, their children in the size that they are, but if they want to go long-term, those needs change, and the boat's not scalable to that. We almost made this mistake ourselves.
3: We had uh, a starter boat, uh, a Halberg 352, so a great classic 35-footer fantastic for our family sailing in Puget Sound. And our kids were small and they were really happy to all share the V-birth. They would just pile up and we had great times in that boat. And it was very tempting to leave on it because we were only going on a sabbatical. They're going to be small, but yeah, we would only have gone on a sabbatical because they would have outgrown it. And having that third cabin, it turns out was the essential factor for us to successfully cruise into their teen years. Yeah,
1: I think one other one that's really important to call out is simply the transition to being on a boat is is can be challenging so there's different aspects to this but one of them is is you've moved on the boat you're you're a cruiser now but spending all your time focusing on the boat and forgetting the priority that you're there to go enjoy the places around you and especially with families where kids are like okay you picked me out of my school you've pulled me away from my friends i'm now in this place i don't know anybody And all you want to do is work on the boat all day long. This is not fun for me. And so making sure that you build in uh, and aware of everybody's happiness Mm -hmm. and make sure the boat projects are going to be there. If it's not something that's dire to the safety of the vessel, do what you need to do a couple hours a day or whatever, but build in fun. Uh, If you don't Mm -hmm. do that, then you don't have a happy crew.
3: I think another aspect too is um, in most families and couples who we work with, it is one person's dream primarily, and everyone else is game to go along for the ride, but it's really one person's driving dream. So we try to figure out um, it's usually not difficult, they volunteer it, but who is that person in this, in this couple that we're working with? And how, and, and, and impress upon them that they need to take on a role that we call the happiness engineer, that it is incumbent on them to make the transition onto the boat go well. And to make those early months go well, and um, that that kind of is their burden to ensure that everyone who's game to go for the ride continues to be happy to stay with it, because we see many people stop cruising abruptly and early uh, because that isn't managed well. And,
1: and related to that is simply um, when you go cruising, it's you're on a boat, so there's there's sailing and there's boating, but that's just one part of the journey. And so if you if the whole experience leading up to it is this is this boat trip. This is a sailing adventure. And then you you go out in your first day and you got the weather forecast wrong and you have a bad day in the water. It's hard to overcome that with a crew that's like okay to keep going along and and try it out for the fit. But it's more important, we feel, to bank good experiences in the beginning, to make sure the weather's right, to do the good things, have fun, and, um, and to frame it differently than just as a, a sailing trip, because it's so much more than that. It's it's travel, it's cultural exposure, it's communing with nature, it's all of these these awesome things, um, unless you're the type of person who really is just in for the sailing, and that is for some people. I mean, I used to sail professionally, so I get that part of it, but there's so much more to the travel that's, that's the, the amazing part, and it's what most people going cruising are going to latch on to.
2: Yeah, that's such invaluable advice. Uh, and thank you for sharing all that because I think part of the challenge with this whole boating thing, looking at it from this side, uh, is that there's so much that goes into it and I probably only know a fraction of what I should know anyway. So I can definitely see the value of working with, with people like yourselves who have the experience and who can help people uh, walk through those steps. But I am curious though, how do you actually where do you start with your clients? Say they're still on land, like, what are those first steps? Even if you just talk about the transition, like, how do you actually transition from being in an apartment in a city to being in a boat somewhere? Like, how do you, how do you do all that?
3: Right. You know, one of the things is, is um, helping people appreciate how achievable this is when it feels very much out there. Um, So, and again, often more to one than the other person. Um, And, Encouraging them step one to set a date a month and a year that they're going to be sailing away. And uh, because we work with people across a range of planning windows and what differentiates people from dream who dream from people who go is having a date. Because if you have a date, you can back out a plan. And what stumbles, what trips most people up is not knowing what needs to be in that plan and how to then create it. And that's where we help. We know it's there's there's the adage about uh, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And we can help identify what all the bites are that a given couple needs, Um, how to step through skills and tasks to get them to that departure date. And then people can leave with all manner of skills because it is a spectrum that's out here as well. And as long as you know appreciate what you don't know and don't try to take on too much and just step into it gradually the probability of success is excellent
1: We begin our process with the um, with a, a form a profile form that we send to the to the people and then they fill out and it's got a whole range of questions on it that help us kind of assess where they are and uh, and I think with YouTube which is, more entertainment than anything else, and and it helps to inspire people to go cruising and sailing, and that's awesome. It does give a lot of false sense of what cruising is actually like,
3: um,
1: and and so there's
3: not as much sailing. Yeah. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, but but it also um, p- people come with different ideas of what what cruising is, and so sometimes there's a misalignment in the image of that, and, and maybe cruising isn't really for them but it also is inspired a lot of people that know very little about sailing to want to go and try. And it's totally possible. We worked yeah. with a lot of people that have no experience or virtually no experience and go through the process step-by-step step, slowly and, and then assess them are do they have good mechanical aptitude and are they going to grasp things in a way more quickly, or is it going to be a little bit slower process Um, and maybe we'd suggest they hire a captain on the boat for, for the first little bit of time until they develop the skills enough to be safe on the boat. So, and and we've spent time helping people on their boats exact, uh, directly when we're in a, a region like that. So everybody's different, their budget, their aptitude, um, their experience levels. We worked with, um, people that have had circumnavigated in the past actually, uh, but, Now they're going to cruise as a family, and so our coaching was helping to be the translation device between the person with lots of experience and the family that has virtually no experience and help to sync everybody up. Yeah,
3: it needs also an independent third party to be able to talk about what it's really like because their experienced family members, what they lived for and what it was like for them is not necessarily what it's going to be like. For the family or the couple
2: yeah that must be such a fun thing for you guys as well to be able to talk to all these people in entirely different situations and different scenarios and and get going with them
3: it really is actually i love it i feel so fortunate to be able to do this and that it's helping to support us as well i really really believe the world is a better place when more people get out cruising their lives are better our lives are better um and what we all know and understand about each other is better and if we can be a little part of that fantastic
1: the fun part is to see the, the photos come in when they finally get out and they get to their first cool destination and the kids are running up and down the beach or it's a couple and they're having sundowners with their new best friends that they, they've they known for 20 minutes, but they anchored next to them and they said, hey, let's have a beer or whatever.
3: Well, when the switch flips and they're less anxious about the what they don't know that might happen and are able to sink into the moment.
2: And since you have worked with so many different kinds of people with different backgrounds and different sort of starter situations do you know is there a general timeline like how long does it take people to prepare for that like are most people planning years in advance or one year in advance
1: it's a pretty broad range I would say if I had to pick an average it would probably be a year and a half to two years Um, but we have plenty of people that come with us and say we're actively looking to buy a boat now we want to be on it in six months
3: or And we've had, and we really only just been inspired in the last few months. But this is what we want to do, and we're charging down that path. So less than a year from we should do this thing to we're on a boat. Yeah,
1: and in reality, sometimes those aren't. It's not the best timeline for people. So our advice sometimes is to slow down. There's more process here. You you can work out and get the boat, but maybe on the boat you're not going to set off and sail around Cape Horn in the first year. so let's you know go to the Bahamas first, and then figure out anchoring and all the other things that we can work with you on. Some people have a longer timeline; it's it's either five decade, five years even. or even longer, and it's um, they come to us because they want to know about how to start planning now and what sort of financial requirements are there and. And how do we start saving now? And how do we make it feel real when it's five, eight years away?
3: And we can give them tools tools to help work through those things, Uh, ways to stay motivated, uh, ways to manage the planning process. And again, there is no one size fits all. But there is kind of a common list of those skills and tasks that we try to have them be aware of and think about and seek experience in, or just tick off like getting your virtual mailbox set up, things that you need to do.
1: And and pitfalls to avoid. So mm-hmm. um, a lot of people experience this thing where they'll have this idea, they'll go start telling people, oh, we're going to sail around the world. And people are like, that's dumb. Why would you do that? Or family members that are, um, that take it, offensively, that they're going to leave and go and do something else and, and have a, a negative reaction. And um, I mean, we, we experience that. We have other cruising friends that experience that. And so it's important to know if you're preparing for this, especially when it's a family, that not everybody's going to share your idea of a dream lifestyle the way that you do. And so be careful about how and when you share information.
2: Yeah, for sure. And one thing I would love for you to talk about is your coaching service because it already sounds like it covers so many different areas that we've already touched on here. So just to set an overview, so what do you help people with? Like to tell everybody, what can you help them with? Because there is a lot that goes into it.
1: <laughs> so what do we do? Well, uh, we do we we help people find a boat that is. Um, a, a good fit for them and financially within their means to be able to afford to go cruising and fit their vision.
3: And open their eyes in that process because like we were talking about earlier, so many people – don't know how to evaluate a boat and its readiness for cruising. And it's very easy to be misled by a listing because they all make them sound like they're just ready to go. Like, just, or not all, but it's it's not uncommon. They all want to, they're all trying to sell the boat and they may say, oh, just provision and go. Turnkey, well, it's turnkey. Turn There's no right. turnkey boat and, well, out there. And, you know, rigging renewed in 2018. We'll look at that as a 2008 boat. And if the rigging was renewed, that means nothing. That doesn't mean anything. That means you probably have to replace the rigging. And depending on the boat, that's like, and well, it's thousands of dollars,
1: but rigging renewed. Another area that we talk about a lot and work people through is um, is getting dirt off of their feet, leaving land life. Mm-hmm. Basically, there's a lot to, to exiting mm-hmm. that um, life that you know so well, from mail service to finances to getting rid of all the junk in your closets, whether you're keeping your house or selling it or whatever that looks like, and, and helping to wrap up that in a way because the transition to getting onto the boat is probably about the hardest thing because you're juggling the boat selection and purchase process and getting rid of all the stuff on land. It's really stressful and complicated. So doing that in an organized processed way, um, and, and, um, makes it so there's hopefully less burden, uh, in those final months.
3: So when we started doing this about five years ago, wow, five years ago, um, this is what we thought our service would be, helping people to, to get launch. going. Yeah, helping them launch. And then this other element crept in, Jamie alluded to earlier, which is that after they launch, well, we also want them to be successful. And it turns out the learning and the, um, and the questions don't stop with the launch. And so a lot of what we do now is actually support people ongoing, usually through the first six months or the year until they feel like they kind of have their cruising legs under them. And it might be everything from troubleshooting their uh, engine um, to figuring out what c- clearances might be like or looking actually uh, particularly commonly looking at weather. One of the things that scares people early on is misjudging weather. And it's very common for people unfamiliar with marine weather forecasts to misinterpret them. And so we spend a lot of time in some handholding to help them avoid circumstances that will be unpleasant at best or scary or turn them off and end their cruising dream at first.
1: Yeah, I think the three areas after people go that we spend a lot of time on are the physical part of the boat, meaning what is the condition and the capability of your boat, and you got a survey and it said one thing, but you're finding this is happening or you broke that thing, and it's helping people assess how to repair or make the most of situations that way. It's weather because... After people do actually leave, weather is one of the number one things where they, they go out and they get beat up or they have routinely uncomfortable passages. And it's they're misinterpreting the information. Weather forecasting is exceptional these days. The tools, the problem is the tools are not the forecast. You're the forecaster. How you interpret those tools is the, the solution. And then the third one is the practical side of the lifestyle which is country clearances, provisioning. um,
3: Realistic routing. I mean, thinking they're going to go from eight in a six-month period, you know, a season, essentially. Anchoring
1: Uh, etiquette. You know, you get down mm. to Martinique and the charter boat anchors seven feet from your transom. How do you gracefully tell this new neighbor that they're too close?
2: And, or um, not.
3: Have you actually just entered a new anchoring culture area and you kind of have to deal with it and, and get up and move yourself if you're uncomfortable with it? Yep.
2: All right. That is a lot.
1: <laughs> it keeps us busy. We've actually, um, I think we've got just about, what, 68 active coaching clients right now. and Over we,
3: 300 that we've helped along the way.
1: 303. We, we thought we could p- kind of peak around 20 people actively because there's it's a one-to-one relationship and we spend a lot of time at it and we're ridiculously cheap. Um, the
3: only because everyone is different, every budget, every boat, every skill set, every set of goals. Like the co- the combinations are so unique to each want to go cruiser, gonna go cruiser, and yeah. and it does take that long. One of the other really cool outcomes has been creating this community um, that our clients have connected with each other, um, primarily through Facebook group, but at some other vehicles too. They're connecting with each other to support before they leave and then after departure, and you know we get these pictures of meetups on the beach in Barbuda. And it's pretty cool. It's really, really neat to see because we're all on that same train of trying to get more people out successfully, happily cruising.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is a great goal to have. And you've already shared so many good tips on, on this chat. So thank you for all of that. But how can people get in touch with you if they want more of that one-on-one directed and targeted uh, assistance for for their situation?
3: Yeah, so probably just the easiest thing is to go to our website, which is sailingtotem.com. Uh, we have information there in the on the homepage and the main menu. There's also a place to contact us through that um, and ask us anything about how it works and uh, if they want to know more than subscribe on the site. But it's a pretty easy way to keep in touch. And then sailing totem is just our handle across various social media. We're, we're pretty easy to find that way.
2: I am sure you've found this episode useful, and I highly encourage you to check out the SailingTotem.com website to learn more about the lifestyle and also about the coaching service Bian and Jamie offer, if that is something that is relevant to your situation. They're so knowledgeable and genuinely helpful, and you may have noticed that a couple of past guests have mentioned using their coaching service to help them get started. We had a lot to talk about, and not quite everything fit into this episode, but the extra bits are available on Patreon. You are more than welcome to join me there for some extra content and behind the scenes updates. I'll share the link in the description if you want to learn more. My guests next week have a lot less experience than BN and Jamie, so you'll get a very fresh perspective about starting this lifestyle with almost zero experience. In the meantime, let's continue to chat on social media or Patreon. Bye for now!